Could we pray together? Father, as we come before you this morning, Lord, help us to recognize that you are the Lord God Almighty. And there is none like you. Lord, your deeds are truly great and amazing. Your ways are just and true. You alone are holy. You alone are deserving of worship. Father, we come before you as people created in your image who have chosen to rebel against you rather than to honor you. Lord, may we see your response to that today. And may we show to you the honor, the worship, the glory that you alone deserve. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. <coughs> Revelation 15 and 16 today. To walk through these couple of chapters here. The title of today's message is, It is Finished. Both at the beginning of this chapter 15 and towards the end of chapter 16, we see the Lord speaking about the completion of the outpouring of his wrath. We saw the beginning of this back in chapter 7 and 8, and we've walked through what's now been a couple of months of exploring these passages of the wrath of God that is going to be poured out on this world. As we jump into this today, I know that there are some some difficult things to hear in this passage, some things that I have really wrestled with and struggled with. But I want to keep in, in the forefront of our minds what I believe God is displaying here, which is the fact that there is coming a day when he is going to renovate this world. He's going to restore this world, and that, and that process of restoration is going to require some very difficult things. Uh, my sister just this week, her and her husband, uh, let us know uh, through Facebook, the means of all communication these days, uh, that they have purchased an old house. It was built in the 1930s, and, and uh, she put on there, it's going to need a lot of work, hint, hint. Okay, so the uh, only thing I can really do is paint. I guess I can go and paint a little bit for them, but it's going to take time to restore that house to a place where uh, they can live in it as they want to. That's what the Lord is doing here. This sin-soaked world has been so devastated. And when we think about our sin, both globally and, and personally, we have this tendency, especially in our culture, to, to minimize our sin and its effects. We, we underestimate 
sin and what it has done to us and what it has done to this world. The Bible says that all creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth because of the law of sin and death that's at work in our world today. And in order for that to be removed, for this world to be restored to the perfect creation that God intended for it to be in the beginning, it's going to require some painful things that we see the fulfillment of that, the completion of that, the finishing of that work here in these chapters. Let's start with chapter 15. In chapter 15, we see the holiness of God's wrath. Now, as we think about the wrath of God, if you're like me, and I'm just going to be real honest with you for just a moment, when we think about the wrath of God, and we kind of think about God's wrath like we think about those attributes of our spouse that we would change if we could. Okay, now you all, now I know there's a few of you in here that go, no, my spouse is perfect, and I wouldn't change anything, and because my wife is listening in the nursery right now, I'm going to say that same thing as you're going to say, but if we were honest, and we weren't going to get in trouble, and we weren't going to have to spend the night on the couch, we would say, if I could, I would probably change this. Maybe I would want them to be a little bit neater. Or I would want them to not talk so much or to talk more, to listen better. We would think of something that if we had the opportunity to change something about our spouse and weren't going to get in trouble for it, there were going to be no relational repercussions that we would change. And you can fill in the blank for yourself this morning. But don't say it out loud because your spouse is probably sitting next to you and will probably hit you and you'll deserve it. I think that's how we think about the wrath of God. We love God. We love the fact that he has been gracious towards us. The fact that he has sacrificed for us his one and only son. We think about the love of God. Greater love hath no man that he would lay down his life for his friends. And we look at these attributes of God and we love him. And we are so enthralled with him that we, we worship him. Not, not yet as he is due to be worshipped. But we, we desire to devote our lives to him. But then we come to some of these attributes about the, the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And we kind of go, you know what? I don't really know what to do with that. In fact, there are many in our culture today who've sought to redefine God, to remove some of the very things that we see displayed here. They've created a God more in their own liking, a God who's full of love and forgiveness, who just kind of looks at sin and kind of just looks away and you know, just kind of ignore that. We have a God in the Bible who will not ignore sin because he's holy. He will not tolerate sin because he is just. He does not merely overlook that in our lives which brings death and destruction, but he seeks to remove it as a cancer that will kill us if it's not dealt with. And here in this chapter, we see God's people and they're praising God in the midst of his wrath. Let's look at it together. Look at verses 2 through 4. We see the, the song of God's people. The redeemed people of God once again come on the scene here. And they're singing once again. We've seen that all the way back to chapters 4 and 5. We saw God's people continually coming up in this book. Revelation is a book of worship. It's God's people praising God. And here they're praising him. But at a time which seems almost a little odd. As God is getting ready to pour out on the world that he created the fullness of his wrath 
His judgment complete and total in this world. The Apostle John says in verse 2, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. We've seen that sea of glass before, but now it's mingled with fire, portraying what is about to happen in the world. And those who had conquered the beast and its image, the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with the harps of God in their hands. This is the redeemed people of God. They're getting ready to worship God. And in verse 3 it says, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your Righteous acts have been revealed. This sounds like many other songs of praise to God in Scripture, like much of what we see in the Psalms. It sounds like the, it obviously refers to the song of Moses, which takes us all the way back to the Exodus, when God's people were removed from the grip of Pharaoh, slavery in Egypt, and they were delivered, and they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. They got to the other side, and they looked back, and they saw Pharaoh's armies crushed in the waves of that Red Sea, and their immediate response was rejoicing, celebration. They began to sing this song saying, Praise God, the horse and rider have been drowned in the sea. That's not like many of the praise songs we sing. But we see them praising God for his judgment that fell upon the wicked armies who were seeking to pursue and to destroy them. And that's what we see here. But if you're like me, you have a hard time praising God for his wrath. If we're really honest... We say we love God. We're a people who have been called according to his purposes. We, we speak these words and they are fully found in, in the scriptures. But it's hard sometimes to look at images like we have here in these chapters and to praise God in the midst of his wrath. It's easy to praise God for his grace, for his forgiveness, for his love, for his mercy. To praise God for his justice. To praise God for his judgment. To praise God for his fierce wrath as we see displayed here. To praise the God who will one day turn all the waters of the earth to blood. And by the way, I don't think that's just symbolic. To praise the God who will turn up the thermostat of the sun to where it scorches people. To praise the God who will pour out these bowls of wrath. And yet, in the midst of these chapters, we see it time and time again. What are God's people doing? They're praising Him in the midst of His wrath. And I struggle with that. I'm just being really honest with you today. I struggle with that. But if we would see God rightly, if we would know him deeply. And I, and I pray that some of you have arrived at this place where you could truly look at the outpouring of the wrath of God and say, amen. This is right. This is true. This is just. This is holy. See, not only the song of God's people, but we see the sanctuary of God's presence is revealed here. And he refers to it there as 
the tent of witness, which takes us back to the Old Testament days when God instructed the people to build this tabernacle, this tent of witness, or the tent of meeting. And Moses would go each day into the tent of meeting to meet with God. And he would come back and he would bring God's people a word from God. And they, they saw this place as a holy place, the presence of God among the people of God. And every day they would watch as Moses would go in. And when they, when they first erected that tabernacle, we saw the glory of God fell upon that place such that no no one could go in in that moment. The tabernacle was just a foreshadowing of the temple that Solomon would later build. The temple in Jerusalem. saw once again the, play, the situation where the people couldn't enter into that temple because the glory of God was so thick in that place. It was the presence of God among the people of God. And it was glorious. You see, in the midst of this, though, there's also the smoke of God's power. That God is displaying before he ever pours out these bowls of wrath, before he ever instructs his angels, his messengers, to accomplish this work of the outpouring of his wrath, he is foreshadowing it by displaying his power as smoke, which fills the temple so that it says there at the end of chapter 15, he says, and no one, no one could enter the sanctuary, no one could approach the dwelling place of God until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. But he doesn't linger long. We've, we've seen many interludes in this book. Uh, between the opening of the sixth seal, the Lamb of God removing those seals from the scroll, and we see the beginning of God's judgments on the earth. Between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, there was an interlude. There was a period of time where some other things happened. And between the sixth uh, trumpet, that was the seven trumpets that were blown, between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, again, there was an interlude, a pause before the finality of those trumpets. But you'll see here, as these last seven plagues, these seven bowls are poured out, there is no interlude, there is no break, there is no pause. It's rapid-fire succession. God is coming to the close of the outpouring of his wrath, and it is swift. Judgment comes quickly. There is no more room for interlude, no more time to pause. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, as he's laying out in these opening chapters of Romans, he's, he's talking about the reality of our sin. And as I said before, the reason that we underestimate our sin Truly, the reason that we overestimate, we we think that God is overreacting sometimes in response to our sin, is because we've underestimated sin's effects in our lives. We all do it. We make excuses. We, We even call it different things. Let me give you, for instance, what the Bible calls adultery, we choose to call an affair. That's a nicer word, right? What the Bible calls sexual immorality, we'll call an alternative lifestyle. Because it's not politically correct to speak otherwise. What the Bible calls idolatry We've got all kinds of names for that, don't we? 
It's just some other things on my priority list. Yeah, I spend all my time with that and very little time with the Lord, but it's not really idolatry. Idolatry is when we have those little statues and we're burning incense and bowing down in front of the little statues. Right now, idolatry is when we remove God from his rightful place in the throne of our hearts and we put something else in that place. When he no longer has our first love and something else becomes our first love. Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul gets to this point and he says, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And folks, I see God being judged a lot in our culture these days. Whenever something happens that, that people don't like, their first place to go is to judge God. How could a loving God allow this? And, and I've even seen it recently here in our own community as we have mourned over the death of a 10-year-old boy. I've seen the comments that have come up on Facebook that run completely contrary to this word. Statements like, he was taken too soon. If we're not questioning the plan and purpose of God when we say that, I don't know when we're questioning the plan and purpose of God. And we'll say, how in the world could God allow, how could a loving and good God allow something like that to happen? As if we somehow know better than God. As if we somehow have more wisdom than he does. Not knowing perhaps what he was protecting that 10-year-old boy from that he might have encountered in this life, in this sin-soaked world. We question God. We judge God. And the Apostle Paul says, Lord, may you prevail. May you conquer. May you overcome when you are judged. And may you demonstrate your perfect holiness in the midst of these things. Believers, let me just talk to us for just a moment because I'm so convicted about this. Whenever we face the atrocities of this life in this world that is ravaged by the law of sin and death, let us stop speaking in politically correct ways. Let us stop trying to make excuses for God. Let us stop saying things that don't line up with this word just because we think that it'll make people somehow feel better. Let's stop coddling people in their sin and start doing what the Bible says, not condemning them. John 3.16, we all know God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And you go on from, and read from there and it says that for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. It says those who have believed in his son are not condemned but those who have chosen not to believe in his son stand condemned already we don't have to condemn the world folks this world is already living under condemnation apart from Christ and so we need to stop coddling people in their sin and start speaking the truth to folks not to condemn them because they stand condemned already and so often we as believers I find us on Facebook and in the public forums it's as if we're somehow watering down the things of God making excuses for God as if he needs us to somehow make excuses for him do you want to know what God needs us for 
The answer is nothing. But he wants to use you for is to speak the truth of his word in love to those who are perishing. So folks, let's stop making excuses for God and let's start speaking the word of God in truth and in love. The next time you see a tragedy in this world, would God give us eyes to be able to look at it and say, God, just and true are your ways. Great and amazing are your deeds. But the reality is, the reason that God has to do the things that he does especially in pertaining to his wrath, is because of the hardness of men's hearts. That's what chapter 16 is all about. If you would take your sin and apply it to what you see here in chapter 16, it will stop you from minimizing your sin anymore. When you begin to see how God must deal with sin, it will stop you from underestimating its effects in your life and in the lives of others. And I pray that God will teach us how to praise Him in His wrath because God is no more holy in His mercy than He is in His judgment. God is no more holy in his love and forgiveness than he is in his wrath. Sometimes we just like to overlook it. The hardness of man's hearts. How do we see men's hearts hardened in this chapter? First of all, they refuse to repent. Twice in this chapter it says they refuse to will not repent and give God the glory. They did not repent of their deeds. We're going to talk more about repentance before we finish today, but this is the reality of sin-hardened hearts. That apart from the grace of God, which changes the hearts of men and conforms them to the image of Christ, we all find ourselves hardened against God and refusing to repent, refusing to turn away from sin. We choose our sin over God every time as hardened sinners, even when we don't realize it. Not only do they choose to repent, but they go a step farther. It gets deeper. They also curse God's character. Three times in this chapter, we see these people cursing God. Verse 9, when they were scorched by the fierce heat as God's turned up the power of the sun, they cursed the name of God who had, given, who had power over these plagues. Verse 11, people are gnawing their tongues in anguish and they curse the God of heaven for their pains and their sores. And then as we come to the end of this passage, in verse 21, as the great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, were falling from heaven on the people, did they repent? No. They cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. We see people in this passage who would rather gnaw off their tongues than acknowledge God with their tongues. 
We see people who would rather stew in their misery than repent and turn to God. And they curse him. Not just using his name as a curse word, which is bad enough, but the picture here is literally shaking their fists at the sky and saying, we hate you, God. We don't care what you do to us. That's where sinful rebellion will take all of us if we choose not to go the path of repentance that Christ has laid out for us. They not only curse God's character, but they literally wage war against God. You see it there in verses 12 through 16. As the sixth angel pours out his bowl, he pours it out on the great river, the Euphrates, which, which formed that eastern portion of the border of Israel, and the water was dried up of that great river to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And then John says, And I saw... Coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan himself. Out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist that we looked at a few weeks ago. Out of the mouth of the false prophet, these three unclean spirits like frogs. You can see this picture, these demonic spirits, it says, performing signs, going abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And then in verse 16 it says, And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew... It's called Armageddon, and we refer to this a lot. There's been movies made, all kinds of talk about Armageddon. It's often referred to as the battle of Armageddon, but I want you to see the reality of Armageddon. First of all, the, the Hebrew there is literally Har Megiddo. Har means hill or, or mount, and there's a place in Israel that's known as Megiddo. I'll put it there on the map for you. You may not be a map person, but here it is. Jerusalem would be down in this particular area, about 60 miles northwest of Jerusalem lies the region known as Megiddo, the city of Megiddo, which is on a hillside there. It's just uh, to that side of the Jezreel Valley. And this portion of the world, I'm going to show you a picture of it in modern day. This is the Jezreel Valley from Mount Carmel. The same Mount Carmel on which Elijah went to battle against the prophets of Baal and called down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. You remember that Old Testament account. It's the same Mount Carmel. And from Mount Carmel, this is what the Jezreel Valley looks like. Napoleon, the the great uh, French leader, described this portion of the world, this Jezreel Valley, which is also known as the Valley of Estralon. This valley he described as the most perfect battlefield in the whole earth. And Napoleon would know a battlefield, wouldn't he? He had many victories on battlefields, and he said this is the most perfect battlefield in the whole earth. And in fact, historians tell us there have been over 200 battles waged on this piece of ground in the history of the world. It's probably the most prolific battlefield anywhere in the world. And so we see in this end times account, we see these kings of the world all gathering at this location, bringing all of their armies to this place. And what is their purpose in coming to Megiddo, in coming to the Valley of Jezreel? Are they just there to have a party? No, they're there to wage war against God and against his people. And so we call it the Battle of Armageddon. But the reality that we're going to see in the next couple of weeks as we dive into chapter 17 and 18 is it's not much of a battle. In fact, let me give you a, an example of what this battle would be like. 
If this is a battle, then it would be a battle if an ant were to crawl up to your toe and engage you in a duel. And I'm not talking about a fire ant. I'm not talking about a colony of ants. A single ant were to crawl up to your toe and seek to do battle with you. That's maybe a small image of what this is. Ants in their own world are fairly powerful, right? And the kings of the world in these final days consider themselves powerful enough to take down the God who has brought these plagues, this wrath upon the world. And so they gather themselves together in an attempt at bringing God down. But in their cumulative power, they are only as powerful as a single solitary ant coming up to your toe. And all you have to do is crush it. In case you're wondering, that's exactly what happens. God looks upon this great military gathering, the greatest the world has ever known. He looks upon that military gathering as you would look upon an ant that were to crawl up to your toe and hold up his little fist as if he were going to fight you. And in a moment, they're crushed. All the power of mankind is nothing in comparison with the power of God. With the tiniest of his fingers, he simply squashes them. For some of us, we look at that and we go, well, that doesn't sound much like a God of love. Folks, it is the God of the Bible. Say, well, that doesn't sound very much like a God that I want to worship. Folks, we can either choose to make a God that's more palatable to us. We can remove all the pages of this description of his character that don't line up with what we think that they should be. Or we can look into his word and see him as he is and say, this God is holy. His ways are right. His word is truth. And I, as a redeemed person, simply because he sacrificed his son for me. We often find ourselves where Paul takes us in Romans chapter 2. Paul says, Do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Far too often we presume on the kindness of the patience, the forbearance of God. We continue in our sin and we think, well, i got all the time in the world to repent and turn to God, not knowing that this may be your very last day of life on this earth before you will stand before his judgment seat. We presume 
on the riches of God. And, and some would say, well, surely God is too kind to truly send anyone to hell. You want to see how kind God is? Then look back to the cross 2,000 years ago where he sent his one and only son into this world, a sinless offering, came into this world, lived perfectly in this world, and he went to a sinner's cross in your place. And do you remember Jesus' final words? As he was hanging there on the cross, pouring out the last drops of his blood by which he would pay the penalty for the sins of mankind, all who would trust in him, his final words, he said, It is finished. In the Greek, it's one word. It's the Greek word, tetelestai. And the tense of that verb points to a completed action with continuing results. Let me, let me say that again. It points to a completed action with continuing results. Jesus said, it is finished. It's the same word that in those days, if you were to enter into debt at a bank, and you had a note that it said you owed this certain sum of money, when you came and made the final payment to erase that debt, they would stamp upon that bill to tell us die. Paid in full. It is finished. A finished product with continuing results. That's what Jesus came to do. That is the kindness of God. If you look at Revelation 16 and say, well, this doesn't seem like a God of love and kindness, then I would challenge you to look to the cross and you will see God's love on display. God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still dirty, sin-ravaged souls who were shaking our fists in rebellion in the face of God, saying, I hate you, I don't want you in my life, I want this sin and I want to do my own thing. While we were still doing that, God said, I love you and let me show you how much I love you. I'm going to send my son for you. He's going to live a sinless life in complete moral perfection on this earth to show you what you were supposed to do, and then he's going to go to a place that you were supposed to go. He's going to take a cross that you were supposed to bear. He's going to die a death that you deserve to die. When this angel says in this passage, this is what they deserve, may we look here and say, God, this is what I deserve. Because of my sin, this is what I deserve. I deserve to be the one covered in painful sores, drinking blood, scorched by the heat of the sun. And far worse, I deserve all of it because I have lived in rebellion to you. But praise be to God, He does not give us what we deserve. Instead, he gave us his only son who died on a cross so that you, through faith in him, could have that which you could never earn or deserve. If you think yourself a good person this morning, good enough to earn the favor of God, I encourage you to look to Jesus. 
Don't compare yourself to your neighbor, to your brother, to your sister. You want to see what it looks like to be a good person that is worthy inherently of the favor of God, then you look to Jesus Christ. And if you think that you can stand toe-to-toe with him, then I pray that God will show you the reality that you were never meant to be saved by your works. You were meant to be saved by his. You were never meant to be redeemed by your sacrifices. You were meant to be redeemed by his sacrifice once for all. You were never meant to save yourself. So quit trying. Quit trying to be good enough. Quit trying to deal with your sin problem on your own. Quit trying, as Neil talked about so beautifully, quit trying to put forth an image of yourself that will cause other people to point to you and say, wow, look how good they're doing. Instead, shed that image and, and realize that apart from Jesus Christ, you are nothing but a sinner deserving of death and eternal separation from God. But then Jesus steps in and he lays claim to your life and he offers you eternal life. And he offers you his grace. And he offers you all the riches of God. But will you trust him? Will you trust him? Because the reality is this. It's the last point today. I'm going to end here. You will either trust in the finished work of God's grace at the cross or you will face the finished work of God's wrath and its completion. Jesus went to the cross to drink the full cup of God's wrath in your place. Like he prayed in that garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if there be any other way, take this cup from me. That cup was the cup of the wrath of God as graphically displayed as we've seen it here in chapter 16. And when Jesus went to the cross, it was not the physical suffering that ravaged him so much. It was certainly not the insults that were being hurled at him from those looking on. The true and intense pain that Christ encountered at the cross was drinking to the very bottom the cup of God's wrath, which he did for you. The reality is this, folks. Either you will trust in the Christ who drank the cup of God's wrath for you, or one day you will drink it for yourself. Father God, I pray for us today. Spoken about heavy things, and sometimes it's so easy for us to shrug off these things and to go on with our our day as if this is some folklore, some fairy tale, some reality far removed from our existence. But God, I pray that you would bring us face to face with the Christ who went to the cross for us.
Help us to realize that there's coming a day when we will say in all truthfulness, it is finished. And the finishing work will either be for us that which Christ already did on our behalf and we have trusted Him by faith and turned our lives, our existence, our eternities over to Him. Either that or we will face finished work of your wrath and so Lord help us this morning to flee from the wrath that is yet to come to flee to Christ where we receive that which we by no means deserve gift of your grace your mercy your forgiveness And in fleeing from the wrath to come, may we faithfully proclaim your praises from now into eternity. And this we pray in Jesus' name.